6. I'm going to read two different passages, one from Genesis and one from the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Tonight we continue in our series uh, following Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, and we come to another problematic topic, uh, a doctrine of Christianity that many in our culture find offensive, namely the problem of sin. My family and I enjoy watching the Planet Earth videos that have been put out a few years ago by the Discovery Channel. And in one very stirring scene, there's uh, film footage of an African ape attack uh, of a large tribe of apes in Africa attacking a smaller and weaker tribe. And uh, the photographers captured this on video of this larger tribe uh, moving in on a stealth move uh, in order to dominate a larger territory of the jungle in order to attain for themselves more fruit trees for their consumption, and uh, killing some of their victims and driving the rest of them out of the territory. But then in a a shocking part of the video comes when they narrow in on a group of apes that are eating one of their victims in an act of cannibalism. And uh, as usual, with kind of an evolutionary spin of interpretation, the narrator of the film uh, makes a comment uh, kind of explaining away this behavior as uh, probably just seeking an extra source of protein. And as I thought about that comment and from that uh, graphic, um, horrific uh, scene, it reminds me of the way many in our culture simply dismiss strange and bizarre human behavior that we find in a a modern contemporary culture. And I think as we observe the things around us, we find that naturalistic explanations of human behavior are largely unsatisfactory to truly account for the things that we inherently see as a moral evil and a grievance. We live in what might be called an age of denial, refusing to accept Uh, the plain observation that human nature is sinful, is problematic. And so tonight, as we continue our celebration of Christ in Advent, of his invasion into this hostile world, we are humbled as we come to the scriptures uh, to find what the Bible uh, testifies against us regarding our base human nature. I'm going to read from Genesis 6 verses 5 and 6, and over in Jeremiah 17, 9. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And then the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9 The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is the written and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled by this stirring indictment, this assessment of human nature that reminds us how dark and broken is the human heart. And Lord, we would come tonight for understanding 
we would come seeking your grace and wisdom as we seek to find refuge in Christ, the one who has come to heal us and deliver us from the pain of our sin. Bless us this evening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this pulpit, I have shared with you some of the sins of my youth from times past, uh, namely uh, my track record of speeding tickets on the Texas highways. And uh, I've also, I believe, shared with you my record, my annual record of going to what was called the defensive driving course, which was kind of a gracious effort by the Texas legislator to provide traffic offenders with one chance per year to clean up your record of traffic violations to uh, keep your insurance costs down. And uh, it's kind of my annual Passover of cleansing from traffic violations and sins. And I remember from those classes, every time we went, we had to watch this one video that told the story of a very sad, tragic young man who made the poor choice of getting intoxicated and went on to drive and wrecked his vehicle into an oncoming car and killed several teenage teenagers within that vehicle. But what was most haunting about that video was live footage of this young man years later in prison, and this young man lacking all remorse, in complete denial of the crime he had committed. The video captures him blaming other people, and completely refusing to take responsibility for what he had done. Now, your initial reaction to this video is is anger. So you think to yourself, how can anybody be so self-righteous and making excuses for himself, just filled with self-pity, refusing to take any responsibility? But then on further reflection, you find yourself pitying this young man. Because as you observe him, he seems hardly human. He's almost beastly in his denial of of refusing to take any ownership of his actions and failing to come to the place of redemption with contrite repentance. You know, most people can recognize the error of this young man. And yet I believe few see how he, he illustrates humanity how many people are in complete denial about the nature of our own hearts. We live in a society very confused over the dark side of man. I read recently in a book by our own Walt Mueller, a record of one of his blogs from years past, in which a young reporter was shocked at Walt Mueller's comments. He was being interviewed to get his response to a recent um, uh, teen uh, homicide, which our county has unfortunately uh, been all too familiar with in recent years. And uh, this reporter was shocked to hear Walt Mueller uh, mention that he wasn't all that surprised about this tragedy. As we look at the violence in our culture, and as he examined the darkness of his own heart, that was an interpretation he hadn't heard. And this reporter could not accept it. He, like many in our secular culture, wanted to believe in the goodness of humanity. 
despite the few bad eggs that occasionally go off the deep end. Well, the Bible makes it very clear. The hearts of men and women are desperately wicked. And those people who refuse to accept this truth become self-deceived and live in denial, blinded by the real- blinded from the reality, and so cut themselves off from the liberating truth of the gospel. As followers of Christ, you and I are called to zealously hold to this doctrine of sin, because only by embracing it do we find the path to true hope and restoration. Well, the scripture references I read were written almost 900 years apart by the foremost of Israel's prophet, prophets, Moses, and one of the last of the prophets, Jeremiah. And together, these bookends of scripture summarize the nature of mankind. Moses gives God's sad assessment in the pre-flood narrative in verse 5, we get this understanding, the emphasis is on the complete wickedness of mankind. The wording Moses uses uh, indicates this idea of completion. The word all is used twice. The word only is used once, as if to demonstrate and communicate that God, in searching us, finds that we are thoroughly bent on evil. And then the commentary in verse 6, that God was grieved. That he actually regret. It's an expression of emotional pain and sorrow. Of regret having made man. And looking at the awful things that mankind was doing to one another. And in rebellion against God. And then the prophet Jeremiah goes on to tell us that our hearts are deceitful. And that word for deceit is the root word from which we get the name Jacob. Like Jacob, we are deceivers. We are liars and manipulators. Jeremiah says that we are sick with an illness that is beyond cure. Well, against such charges, we might imagine the defense attorneys of our modern culture uh, coming back with an argument telling us that we are overly pessimistic about our assessment with man. How dare we? Shame on us for having such a dour prognosis of the human condition. Certainly man has much more promise than the Bible uh, uh, pretends to say. And uh, when it comes to Christians, and particularly us Reformed Christians, with our noxious doctrine of total depravity, isn't this uh, an indignifying thing to say about human persons? And is it merely a religious effort to enslave people with an outmoded dogma of ancient religion? Well, I think as Christians we can respond with our own rebuttal by insisting that the doctrine of sin is actually good news. It's good news because it tells us that we are not helpless victims. That we are not like the animals driven by psychic and biological instincts and drives. Sin cannot be reduced to merely biological disease 
to be cured by medical technologies. Sin is a personal, degrading, and active rebellion against a holy God. Paul Miller, in his book, Loved Walked Among Us, tells the story of a young man who had wrecked his life with an heroin addiction. And then when he finally hit bottom, uh, hit rock bottom, he came to his senses, and with the help of a, uh, uh, a pastor through counseling, was able to come back and try to be reconciled through to his parents. And during this reconciliation meeting, this young man attempted to apologize for all of his wrongdoing to his parents. And he sought out their forgiveness. Unfortunately, the father insisted that there was nothing to forgive. After all the lying, after all the manipulation, all the stealing, all the bailing out of prison, this father had the audacity to say, it's nothing. There's nothing to forgive. And in fact, the father's response was quite hurtful to the son because he recognized right away that his father was treating him like an animal, like something broken, like something that couldn't help it. But the son had learned. He did know better. And he was finally accepting responsibility for his awful and heinous behavior. And so his father's withholding forgiveness was a hindrance to his own growth and healing process. See, this young man was trying to become human again. And to become human requires the dignity of sin, confession, repentance, and restoration. You see, we biblically are called to call sin for what it is. For when we call sin and name it, it actually restores dignity to humanity. It means we are fully human, distinct from the animals made in God's image, capable of wonderful good, and yet also terrific evil. My wife and I, a few years ago, began to catch on to this idea. We uh, were made to recognize and understand this tendency we had that when one of us offended the other and would make a move to apologize, the offended party would say something to the effect of, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. And as we were reading and learning about this topic, we came to realize that we actually had been minimizing sin and simply making excuses for it. And we had to kind of relearn true biblical confession and forgiveness. And so when one of us offended the other, we would say something more to the effect of, Honey, what I did was wrong. I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? And the other would respond, Yes, I forgive you. And I love you. You see, true acknowledgement of sin Confession and repentance opens the door to restored relationship and freedom. Well, what is sin? 
Thankfully, Pastor Rogers has been doing a wonderful job treating this topic from Genesis in recent weeks, so I don't have to go into a lengthy treatment tonight. But I will offer Tim Keller's brief description, uh, his definition, and some of the consequences of sin he outlines in his chapter on sin. He says that anything other than loving God supremely as the center of life is sin. You see, sin is more than just breaking rules. It's making good things ultimate things, which is ultimately idolatry. See, our problem is in establishing a sense of self by making something else more central to our significance than God. In the award-winning film Chariots of Fire, a young Jewish sprinter from England is quoted saying, I have ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. This man was using athletic achievement as the basis for his identity and purpose. In great contrast, the missionary Eric Little says, When I run, I feel God's pleasure summarizing his life mission to glorify God in whatever he did, whether in athletics or on the mission field. You see, the Jewish sprinter's problem was something old and something new. You see, in traditional cultures, people are ingrained and taught to find their sense of worth by fulfilling duties to one's family, to service, to society. But in our modern contemporary culture, we find people seeking their identity by their achievements, their social status, using it with their talents or their love relationships. You see, any identity that's rooted in anything but God is inherently unstable. And when, and when that identity is threatened, it results in outrage. People whose identity is threatened shrink back in paralysis of fear. If you lose somebody that you need, you not only become resentful but bitter. If you fail in your goals, you can fall into self-hatred, despair, feeling like a failure. But if your identity is rooted in God and in his love for you in Christ— You can face and overcome anything. An identity without God leads to addictions and winds up empty. Think about it. If you had everything that you wanted, would you be happy? America is one of those cultures where people can pursue happiness. And we have all kinds of people, wealthy, beautiful, successful. At the same time, many of these same people are empty and feel like there is nothing to live for. You see, if you center your life and your identity, maybe upon your love relationships, you can become emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. If you center your life and your identity on your family and your children— You live your life through your children who grow up to resent you. At worst, you may even abuse them if they displease you. 
If you center your life and your identity on your work, your career, you grow into a workaholic and become a boring, shallow person. You wind up losing your family and your friends. And if your career goes poorly, you develop depression. If you center your life and your identity on money and possessions, you are eaten up with worry, jealousy, and paranoia. You might even succumb to unethical practices to preserve your lifestyle. If you center your life and your identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will become addicted. You will become chained to escape strategies in order to avoid the pains of life. If you center your life and your identity on relationships and approval of others, you will be hurt over and over by criticism of others. You will always be losing friendships. If you fear confronting other people, you will become a useless friend. And if you center your life and your identity on religion and morality, and if you're able to live up to your righteous standards, you'll become proud, self-righteous, and cruel. And if you don't live up to those standards, you'll be crushed by devastating guilt. Such are the consequences of sin on the personal level. Well, what about the social consequences of sin? We look around us, we look at history, we see society, and we see that racism, violence, and exclusion is the net gain of human sin. Jonathan Edwards, in his uh, work on the virtues, said that society society becomes fragmented when anything but God becomes its highest love. If family or nation is our highest love, we will grow to neglect and despise outsiders. If we get our identity from our ethnicity or our socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you'll be extremely indignant towards people you think, are bigots. If you are a very moral person, you will feel very superior to people that you think are licentious. And on and on it goes. Lewis had this to say in highlighting the, one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. He said, The Germans, perhaps, at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on in the vicious cycle forever. Both goodness and evil grows with compound interest. Such is the nature of humankind. The testimony of history endorses this biblical view that mankind is fundamentally self-centered and bent on destroying anything or anyone who will threaten his own self-interest. 
Well, we also need to consider a third consequence, a third effect. We call this the cosmic effect of sin. You know, it's interesting to note the great contrast between the Bible's story of creation with other stories of of ancient accounts of creation. Virtually all ancient pagan accounts of creation, the world, the universe, is a byproduct of warfare, of great acts of violence between the gods or heroes. It's never planned. It's always just some accident that appears out of nowhere. And what's striking, ironically, is how similar that story is to modern science. In the account of the universe coming about by accident, by impersonal, violent forces bringing everything out of nothing. And so, if one's view of creation is based upon meaninglessness, violence, and impersonality, your view of human nature will be no better. Human nature just is what it is. I think for most people, this explanation doesn't square with our innate sense that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Most human beings lack a sense of peace with the world and with God. The cosmic consequence of sin is the breaking of shalom, this Hebrew idea of wholeness, of harmony, of joy, of flourishing. We live in this fallen, broken, and twisted world. The results of sin are obvious. Disease, famine, aging, death, oppression, war, and crime. None of these things were original, but are the parasites, the offspring of foul and foolish decisions from the very beginning. And we all long in our hearts for the cease of these tragedies once and for all. The superiority of the Christian view of the world satisfies God made all things good. God even made mankind upright, but man has gone in search of foolish schemes. So says Ecclesiastes 7.29. All All of us have an inner longing, a desire for peace and for order, and that reflects the brokenness of this world that is in need of restoration. So what is the cure? What is the answer to the problem of sin? What can possibly make it all right again? Well, it's obvious that turning over a new leaf is not enough. Better education and technology is not enough. Willpower and determination cannot conquer sin. If it could, we would have solved the problem of sin a long time ago. We would have solved it ourselves. We would have medical technologies that cure it. But it's obvious that sin is a problem that is beyond the power of man. Every human effort, every attempt to beat sin has been met with defeat. It's our adversary, like death. 
the thing, the unstoppable force that we are powerless to resist. So what is sin? As mentioned before, it's not just doing bad things. It's putting good things in God's rightful place. And so somehow the cure for sin is somehow related to putting God back into his rightful place at the center of our hearts and lives. It seems that most people approach God and approach religion on terms of negotiation. As good members of democracy, people want to compromise. God, I will do this. Here's my end of the bargain. I will be good, and you will bless me. Well, it turns out that that's not what God wants, even if we could keep up our end of the bargain. You see, Jesus Christ wants more than our duty. He wants more than our best. He wants more than our moral behavior. He wants you. He wants your entire self. And he promises, if you will let him, to give you a new self. A self not striving with him in rebellion, but conforming to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, God does not want your time, your money, even your best efforts. He wants you. You know, many people are afraid of religion as a kind of straitjacket. You know, Americans love their freedom. And religion would crowd in upon my freedom and my rights. But they misunderstand that Jesus does not torment the natural self. He kills it and remakes it. I'm convinced that most of us, most people, trivialize sin. We think we can manage it. We think we can keep our sin under control and keep it at bay. But the scripture is clear. No, you, you must kill it. You must let God have control over your nature. C.S. Lewis has this to say. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. In Christ, because he was the only man who, who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus is not our trainer. Jesus is not our self-help guru to improve us in some sort of self-realization. His agenda is to completely remake us. Lewis describes how if you 
want to cut your grass to keep the grass down, you're not going to grow wheat. If you want wheat, that field of grass must be plowed and completely re-sown. And so it is with God. He must plow us, re-sow us to reap a harvest of righteousness. People pursue all kinds of false religions and philosophies of life, seeking health, peace, and happiness. But all of these things fail because all of them are poor masters. Jesus is the only master. He is the only Lord who would die for you, who would sacrifice something precious for you. He's the only one who can live up to the promise. He's the only one who can answer, who can actually deliver, because he has dealt the death blow to sin forever. If you receive him, he will fulfill you. If you fail him, he will forgive you. Nothing else in all of God's creation can satisfy you as Jesus can. You know, we can talk all night about how non-believers avoid, try to deny sin to their own peril. But such denial, as we know, will never benefit them. The gospel will never benefit anybody who refuses to acknowledge the problem of sin. It's only the man who admits his guilt, who grows afraid of eternal punishment to the extent that he is driven to the cross to find refuge in Christ. Friend, that is the message of Christmas. You see, things were so bad. God could not just send us a manual of instruction. God had to send us Emmanuel, God with us, to come and dwell with us, to point out our error and to show us the way and to die for sinners. That's how dreadful our condition was. We needed the God-man who would humble himself and lay down his life for sinners. In his ministry, Jesus was known for confrontation. The Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus pointed out to her her adulterous affairs to help her to see that her identity was in men. To a rich young ruler, Jesus pointed out his significance rooted in his wealth. To the Pharisees who were proud and self-righteous, Jesus pointed out their identity and their status. Even his own followers, his disciples, were characterized by greed, coveting positions of power, judgmental attitudes towards others. And likewise, we find Christians, too many Christians, weak on their understanding of sin. At the very best, such Christians are weak also on grace. For only as you understand the depths of sin can you see the heights of God's grace for you in Christ. And at worst, someone who is blind to his or her own sin needs to make an assessment of whether or not you are in Christ. Because if you have not been brought to understand your sin, perhaps you don't understand the gospel. 
that the gospel is for sinners, not for good moral people who are trying to do things right. It's for sinners. It's for people whose hearts need radical transformation by the grace of God in Christ. C.S. Lewis offers another quote for us. He says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petroleum, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. The grace of Christ is better than a clean driving record. It's a clean record before a holy God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus came to earth to wage war on sin. That precious baby was a warrior entering into a cosmic conflict for you and for me. So this Christmas, let us rejoice and be glad, for we have been delivered from our bondage to sin, our fear of death, by the one who redeemed us, far as the curse is found. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we thank you for the remarkable redemption that we have in Christ. Help us, we ask, to see and understand our sin, to grieve over it, to repent of it, and to boldly stand firm by the biblical testimony that others too might come and be reconciled to God. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.